Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric, a podcast for bass lovers and music enthusiasts of all genres. Join us as we revisit some of the most iconic recordings from different bassists, past and present, discussing behind-the-scene insight and stories that made up some of the most revered albums of our time, all from a bass player's point of view. Now here's your host, international recording artist, Mr. Christian Day Masonis, a.k.a. Big New York. From 1971 to 1986, Joe Bouchard created imaginative, eclectic music that solidified his place in the League of Rock Royalty. As the basis of the legendary band Blue Oyster Cult, he crafted bass lines that are now firmly cemented in the hearts of loyal fans with songs like Don't Fear the Reaper, Godzilla, and Burning for You, all staples of classic rock radio. Today, he is a solo recording artist producing and playing both guitar and bass, which can be heard on his 2020 release, Strange Legends, on the Deco Entertainment label. We Sing the Bass Electric proudly welcomes Mr. Joe Bouchard. Welcome, brother. That was a great introduction. All right, that's my, ma- my little magic potion for you. All right, um, how old were you when you first started playing the bass? Uh, 20. I was late being a bass player because I had been a guitar player and piano player and trumpet player um, in high school. Mm-hmm. And I got lucky in my first band. Uh, I had this guy, Eddie, Eddie Baznat, tremendous bass player. He started out playing on a uh, regular guitar and he would tune the, the, uh, the E string down to a low C. And that was our bass in our first band, was Eddie playing on this thing. But eventually, and I can remember the day he got his bass guitar, I was coming to rehearsal and I heard this sound coming out of the porch where we rehearsed. I said, holy mackerel, it sounds like a real band. And uh, I still to this day, I think of Eddie when I play my bass lines because there was nobody that was as more in the pocket than Eddie you know Eddie was so in the pocket you know so I never had to you know I'd I'd pick up a bass once in a while so Mm -hmm. fast forward about 10 years and I'm in college and um, I'm in my um, junior year of college Mm -hmm. and I was sort of in between bands I didn't have a band I was looking around I, I you know I have to be in a band Mm-hmm. One way or another, I got to be in a band somehow. And uh, I was kind of looking around. So I went down to this local club in the college town that I was where I was at the time, Ithaca College, mm-hmm. down in Ithaca, New York. And I saw this band that just blew my mind. They were a jazz Latin uh, band. <clears throat> and I, I remember going to see them. Wow, this is this is what I was looking for, you know. Mm-hmm. So, come Monday morning, I'm in my music theory class at Ithaca College, and I'm sitting next to the bass player of that great band. So I said to the bass player, "Hey, man, I really loved your band. Wow, you know, you guys are just so together. Every the harmonies, the you know, the grooves, everything." And he said, "Well, I'm not happy. I'm leaving." And the light bulb goes off in my head. You know, it's time to make a move. <laughs> wow. It's time to, I want his job. Yeah. Um, 
Sam. Sam. That was Sam, the bass player. Sam Hayward. Okay. Um, nice guy. I, I'm still friends with him on Facebook, and we talk about this all the time. He lent me his um, um, Hagstrom bass. I don't know if okay. you know Hagstrom bass. Yes, I do remember them. Oh, I think and they had those deadly switches. <laughs> there was like these little things. I know. If you hit yeah. your finger on those switches, you ooh, ooh, it would hurt. <laughs> so, yeah. so I said, I'm going to, I want your job, basically. I was, uh, I knew them and okay. I used to jam with them on my college breaks. I'd mm -hmm. go down to Long Island and we meet at the, the band house and, um, you know, I'd have like a week or two off. That was unheard of, you know. I'd never had that much time off. But, you know, college college breaks usually are pretty long, like spring break, Christmas break. And there's nothing to do up in my hometown. So I would head down to Long Island where my brother Albert and, and the guys that became Blue Oyster Cult would be, you know, doing their thing in the band house and getting ready to put out an album on Electra. So... Spring of 70, I booked them into a club. They came off. They slept on the couch in my fraternity house. <laughs> All these hippies. This is such a funny one. All these hippies were sleeping on the couches in the lounge because they didn't want to pay for a room. So mm -hmm. I said, ah, sleep in the lounge. Everybody does that. <laughs> so, and, and then my straight, sort of straight music, uh, music uh, fraternity brothers were saying, what are all these hippies doing in the lounge? Oh, that's all right. It's just my brother and his band. <laughs> uh, I had pretty much determined that I was going to not be a music teacher, and I was going to pursue a uh, music career. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, rock stardom was in my future. Uh, you know, I you know I'm very naive, of course, and I thought, oh yeah, why not? <laughs> I graduated. I got my my bachelor's degree in music education. I graduated from college. Well, you know, I got a summer job working on Martha's Vineyard. I was a piano player in a mm. musical theater. I would play the piano. And that's why I really learned how to read music, too. Because when you're desperate to read music, you learn to read music. I mean, I was going to get fired if I couldn't play scores. And these were like orchestra scores, orchestra you know, uh, condensed orchestra scores. So you had to make up stuff. You had to make up stuff, and you couldn't stop. That so, seems to be a, a big, a real big factor as far yeah. as being professional. I mean, and you can say musician. you're going to learn to read music, but it's not until you either join a big band or end up in a theater production where reading music is just vital to the gig. Mm. So, um, in the middle of that summer, I get a call about three o'clock in the morning from my brother. And uh, he says, hey, we need a bass player. We're going to be touring with Led Zeppelin. So can you get here as soon as you can? I said, well, I got my contract is until Labor Day, but I'll be there the day after Labor Day. I will be there. So my summer gig is over. I drive from Martha's Vineyard to Long Island in the worst traffic. The worst traffic I had ever seen in my life. I'd never seen traffic like this. It took me forever to get there. So I get to the band house. I say, "Yeah, let's go. Come on, I'm ready for Led Zeppelin tour. We're gonna we're gonna blow them off the stage." 
And Albert says, uh, the tour is not happening. What? <laughs> what? I says, okay. So four days later, after finding out the Led Zeppelin tour wasn't going to happen, not with Soft One Underbelly or the name we had at the time, which which Stock Forest Group. Okay. Um, a succession of names that weren't going to live on in infamy. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, four days later, we get a, a telegram from Electra Records, Jack Holzman, and it says, you guys are off the label. We got fired. I'd only been in the band for four days. Come on, give me a chance. Wow. So that was very disappointing. I didn't yeah. know, you know. What's 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 happening here, guys? Come on, can't you get it together to get finish the album and you know put it out there? Because you guys are great, you know they're geniuses. Buck mm -hmm. Dharma, you know he was Don yeah. Roser back then, but he's a genius. And uh, you know, and Alan and Eric and my brother, what a team! What a team! Mm -hmm. There's no reason that we shouldn't have had an album out earlier. But so I said, okay, we'll go back to the drawing board. Gonna, we're going to make some money. <laughs> we're going to go out. We're going to play. Play and play and play until we get it together, you know. I felt I was a good fit for the band because I'd worked with Albert for eight years through junior high school, high school. You know, I know how he plays. So my, the trick for me was let's keep him, you know, use that, his what he plays, and just enhance it. You know, and then at the same time we're doing that, we got to make Buck Dharma the greatest guitar player in the world. So I, I don't feel like I was ever destined for a solo, especially on the bass. Uh, you know, trajectory. <laughs> I, I would get my little solos in every once in a while. You know, mm. but the main thing was was to make the whole band sound cohesive. And a big difference from the earlier days in the 60s when they were doing this sort of jam band music. So mm -hmm. um, I we, we toured around, you know, just the dumpiest places, whatever, any place we could play, you know, in the city park, you know, uh, at uh, clubs in Pennsylvania and upstate New York and, and uh, just playing wherever we could to get our sound together. Mm. And uh, about, we met this guy, uh, David Lucas, who had a little studio in New York. It was, it was magical. So David said, uh, I like you guys. Why don't you come in? I'm, my jingle studio isn't working on the weekends. I got free time over the weekends. Bring your band in, we'll cut some demos. So we went in there, we cut four songs and a demo. So Sandy, Perlman was our manager. Sandy took the demos around to record labels and nobody was interested. They probably had heard the reputation of the band, you know. They didn't get the album done for Electra. Why should we give them another shot? Blah, 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 blah. So we went back to on the road, played clubs, um, built up our repertoire, you know. And uh, of course, we play a lot of clubs that say, we, we don't want you playing any original music. You have to play, you know, other people's music. So we'd, so we'd slip one in. We'd slip one in. Uh, 
and, the, and we'd say, this is a song by Glenn Campbell. <laughs> and we'd play one of our own songs. That's the was, way to do it. <laughs> yeah. You just, they don't know. They don't know. They're drunk. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah. say, yeah, here's a song that uh, was played by the Vanilla Fudge. And we'd play one of our songs. So we did another set of, you know, things are getting desperate. So we did another set of demos, four more songs with David Lucas in his jingle studio. It was very nice and just let us come in there for free. And uh, these next set of demos, Sandy Perlman took them around to the record labels and they were starting to get some interest. Atlantic was interested, but uh, the most interest came from uh, Columbia. Hmm. We set up an um, audition with Clive Davis in the conference room at, this, at the CBS building. Wow. <laughs> All of our gear at one end of the room, and there were like, you know, seven chairs at the other end of the room. We just played five songs as fast and as loud as we could, and uh, they, they signed us. They, they signed us to a contract, and then, and then things started getting interesting because then then we really had to deliver the album it had to be great you know yeah. and um so that was that was the start of the blue oyster cult you know being known oh and the name of course we had to come up with a name we had a, we had to come up with a new name we couldn't be the soft white forest underbelly yeah the, i got you the soft, yeah. soft soft white forest group or did you come up with the name Blue Oyster Colt? Or did no. your brother come up with it? No, actually, Sandy Perlman. Oh, okay. He had written a uh, poem that was part of Imaginos, the, uh, the, the grand trilogy, the grand uh, uh, concept record. Mm -hmm. And Blue Oyster Cult uh, was the shape-shifting aliens that would come to Earth in order to change the direction of history how come i didn't how come i am just finding out I about didn't know this that today until after i left the band i didn't well, know that until well. i left the band who would make up all this stuff was what's blue oyster go well it's it's nothing you know it's just you know a motorcycle gang this yeah. is a motorcycle gang that went to oaxaca mexico and saw this double eclipse of the sun and they got so whacked out, they became Blue Oyster Cult. That was what I was told. But years later, it's it's really come down to that we were aliens from outer space. Well, you know what? <laughs> Let me, I got to tell you, you know, uh, first of all, as a bassist, I was always wondering, because I, I looked up some of your videos, did you ever play with your fingers in the early days? Because mostly well, I remember you were a pick player all the time all the times i've seen you live yeah, back back in college um the first two years i played bass i played only with fingers okay. the first two years um but it wasn't it wasn't metal it wasn't anything that was like you know fast and frantic you know so i started i probably started playing a little bit of pick and a little bit of fingers when i started the band donald mr buck dharma said you know, you play better with the pick, you know, why, oh, you know, why, why, you know, I think real finger players, they develop these really great calluses and, and, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and even now I play, 
I played probably 97% of all Blue Oyster Cult bass parts with a pick. Okay. Uh, because I know I'm better at it than I am with fingers. But occasionally, a song would come out, like uh, the song on the Mirrors album, In Thee, where I played with fingers. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe there's one or two others. Uh, like I said, out of uh, 99 s songs that we recorded, maybe uh, two of them have fingers. Uh, I'm, I'm better with the pick. I've, I've, done, I've done a lot of pick studies since then, too. So I think I'm, you know, hopefully better. Did you start on round round strings immediately? Or did you know the difference? Because I remember growing up first learning the bass that my first bass was strung with flat rounds. And I tried to get that click that rock sound in yeah. the early days. And I didn't know. And then someone said, I don't know how I learned it, but um, I finally figured out the difference between round rounds and round, flat rounds. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, when I first joined uh, Blue Oyster Cult was the time that uh, round, uh, the uh, Rotosound strings came out. Mm -hmm. And Rotosounds just sound great. I still have Rotosounds on my bass now. Mm -hmm. um, use them a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually went back to Flatwounds and I was using Pyramid Goals on the uh, Alembic bass, but we can talk about that later okay but i i did use some flat ones on the alembic bass um i was just playing the bass today it's it's a great bass it has such a resonant uh the wood is so just the wood by itself is so resonant uh, you know but well, well, don't don't give the, the don't let the cat out of the bag just yet because you know <laughs> that i'm going to be asking you about the uh, yeah. legendary alembic but and, uh, uh, <laughs> back to the first album and sort of getting our feet uh, solid in the, the business you know mm -hmm. we went out and we did a tour with the birds as our it was paid for by columbia records uh the birds needed to sort of revitalize themselves because all the original birds left and it was mm -hmm. just roger mcguinn and three other guys mm -hmm. tremendous players though and uh, so they set up a tour in new england before our first album came out and it was us, and opening act was Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, the first you know, Birds show, of Fire. Birds yeah, of Fire Birds was of Fire. such a great album. The Inner yeah. Winding Flame. Yeah. It's iconic. Iconic. Yes. That's like, uh, that's like his uh, kind of blue, you know. It's yeah. kind of like in that category of like, this, this really shook up the business. Yeah, so absolutely. We had to follow them every night, about, about eight shows in a row, and it was like, holy crap. How did that go over, man? I, I'd, be, uh, I'd love we to did, be a fly we, on the wall for that. Those well, gigs. <laughs> the first show they played was their first show ever. I forget mm. which college town it was, somewhere in New England. Mm. And uh, they weren't too good. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, we'll just blow these jazz guys off the stage. They're just like, you know, oh, okay, so maybe... Maybe they got a history with uh, Miles Davis, but, you know, kids don't want to see that. Yeah. Second night, they came back out. Man, they got a lot better. The third night, they were like, Wow. We got to follow this. They just yeah. killed them. They killed them, and it kept going and going through the whole tour. We were squeezed in the middle, and everybody really wanted to see the birds do Mr. Tambourine Man. 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, it was not a great tour for us. Mm. It's not a great tour. But our album wasn't out. Okay, maybe the people just didn't know our stuff. I think McLaughlin's album did come out. I think it was out. And, of course, the Birds had years of great records, mm. great singing. And, and here's another weird thing about that tour. We had two different PA systems. They didn't want the birds didn't want to use our PA system. They had their own Dinky Dawson system from Boston, mm -hmm. and which sounded like you're sitting in front of your stereo. Ours was kind of like, you know, with all these horns and just a weird setup. But the birds came out and decided, wow, you know. So we come off the tour, we're kind of feeling dejected. Like, oh, what are we going to do, man? If we don't get our sh show together, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to end up back being, you know, getting a telegram from the president. You're gone. Your history. No. So we went to see a band that we, I'd never seen before called Alice Cooper. <laughs> 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 Actually, I saw him the day before we went out on the Birds tour. I saw him then, but then after we came back, I saw him again, and I'm saying, "Wow, this is this is fantastic. This is this is what we should have been doing. This kind of thing." The audience was really young, you know. The audience were like just barely teenagers, you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and they had their anthem. I'm eighteen, and I like it. And they were all singing, I'm 18. You know, they were just, you know, couldn't wait. You know, they were such an energetic young audience. Well, you so, caught Alice Cooper at that time where he was with Bob Ezrin, right? Because those yeah. first two albums, yeah. they were very, their sound wasn't developed yet. And it was for, Pretties for You, right? All yeah. that's those, yeah. yeah. So the fact that you got them at I'm 18 on that tour, they're starting to come into who they are as a band at that time. Black Juju, which was a great Dennis Dunaway song, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. you know. All of that. Yeah. So our manager, Sandy, somehow got through to their management and their agent. And the next thing you know, uh, they had some they had some weird opening acts. They had Dr. John opening them, mm. opening their tour. And so let me just tell you this story. So Dr. John you know, after a couple of days of the tour, Dr. John comes out with a snake. And the Alice Cooper guy says, wait a minute, you can't bring a snake out. Alice has got a snake. And Dr. John says, oh, I've been using snakes for years. Wow. <laughs> so I didn't know that. This they, is really great they info. Kicked, they kicked him off the tour because he refused to not bring the snake out. I mean, Incredible. You, don't, you don't come out with like the headliners big, yeah. you know, thing. Because uh, Alice did bring the snake out all the time. He still does. Yeah. So we end up going to, uh, I think it was Worcester Mass for the first show. And just, they were trying us out. Other mm. bands they had weren't working for them. And from the first note that we played on stage, it was like, Crazy! And like the, the whole audience went nuts. So well, they they wanted us for more shows, 
And the same time that we're opening these shows and getting a great response, as opposed to the birds shows, um, we started, you know, watching what they're doing, you know, and they were had a really, really tight set. I mean, you know, uh, they're all great personalities, you know, Dennis Neal, they're still my buddies. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, tremendous. Michael wrote the hit songs. And Alice, of course, awesome. And so we, we're thinking, hey, if they can do that, we can get away with a lot too, you know. I mean, you know, uh, there was no Eric Clapton in their band, say. There was mm-hmm. no, you know. And, uh, but the strength of all five original guys coming together to make it happen. It really inspired us. So uh, that was a great tour. And our album came out. And started getting a little bit of action. We had Cities on Flame, the first single. And, um, you know, so they didn't sell a lot of Columbia records of the first album. But uh, it was enough for them to say, yeah, let's make another one with this band. Let's see what they can do. You know, you know. And the next album... Tyranny and Mutation got did a little bit better. Um, the next album after that did a little bit better than the one before that. Uh, Secret Treaties, mm-hmm. and then we did uh, a live album, On Your Feet or On Your Knees, because we were so doing so well in the live market. We were doing so well in the live market that uh, let's let's give the fans. A souvenir of you know what they see basically what they see in a live blue oyster cult show and which which by the way is before kiss alive because i i believe that i bought that album and i did see you open for kiss at nassau coliseum your hometown um oh yeah in in new year's eve 1975 i I actually yeah, I saved the confetti, man. I still got the confetti in a little <laughs> saran wrap or something, man, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was a triple bill with um, another great rock uh, bass player, Kenny. What's his name? Arison? Kenny Aronson. Kenny Aronson, yeah. Yeah, he was playing with um, Leslie West Band. Leslie West. Right, that's right. So they opened, then you came on. And then, of course, Kiss. And, you know, I'm 14 years old and I'm in ninth grade and it's my first concert and my dad drives me in the snow to Nassau Coliseum. I mean, I can't begin I, to tell I you. I forgot <laughs> that Kenny Aronson played with Leslie West. Yeah. I See that? I know, he's a good friend of mine. We never uh, talk about that one. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, of course, I remember that show. It was, it was great, you know. Yeah. And Leslie West ended up being a good friend of mine, too. And actually asked me to to play some gigs with him i could i had to turn him down so i had mm-hmm. something else going on but that would have been fun i pl- i played with leslie uh we played with uh, leslie in a w- workshop it was my brother and i we became mountain for two songs oh, oh wow <laughs> what you what was this what oh, year was this it was in the 90s it was in the okay. 90s i was i was working at the uh, national guitar workshop and yeah. Leslie okay. was the guest that came in, and I said, "Hey, get my brother up there, and we'll we'll play Mississippi Queen." So, I'll tell you, you know, the band's breakthrough was really to me the 1976 release of Agents of Fortune, to which you contributed the solo written song "Morning Final." Tell us a little bit about what it was like to write and present 
an independent song when you were part of such a collaborative band. Okay. About that time, we all got tape recorders at home. <laughs> we could finally yeah. afford a tape recorder at home. And we all, you know, I, 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 uh, I bought a piano too. Because uh, I hadn't had a piano since college, you know, and I started playing, you know, going back and playing arpeggios uh, on the piano. And um, that song lyrically was influenced by, I stayed at um, uh, Patti Smith's apartment. Her apartment was right next to the Chelsea Hotel, and I stayed a couple of nights at the Chelsea. I get up. I read the newspaper in the morning. It's the morning final. It's the name of the, the newspaper. Mm. And there's a story about a, uh, a guy that was killed in the subway. Uh, and, uh, and then I read, wait a minute, it's like 100, 100 feet from where I'm sleeping. <laughs> That's oh, where oh, it wow. happened. It happened right there uh, wow. in the subway. So that, of course, that started the wheels turning. I said, "Well, who knows?" So I, I guess I'm, I took notes right out of the newspaper and put them into my uh, notebook. So I'm sitting at my piano and I'm knocking out this riff, and that one, that one's written all on piano. And I made a little cassette demo. We would have these rehearsals where everybody would bring their cassette demos in, mm -hmm. you know. And of course, Donald's cassette demos were stunning. I mean, compared to ours, were like really crude. But you know, we put it. We try to be fair and balanced, <laughs> fair mm -hmm. and balanced, and try to give everybody a good shot. You know, and also there was a demand from Columbia Records. You got to come up with a whole new album. You have, you know, the first album we. Pieced together a couple of things from the 60s, the earlier days, the softwood underbelly days. Pieced together a little thing. Uh, as we got touring, we didn't have that luxury of that time. So we had to come up with new material every year. And uh, so we'd probably listen to about 20, 30 songs and try to pick the best 10 or 12 out of those. And... Um, I got to give my my brother credit. He was always saying, "Oh, we should do Joe's song here." You know, this morning final song that could be really good. When brought it into the studio, that one is kind of interesting because Alan Lanier. I was going to play piano on it because mm -hmm. I'd written the piano part, and uh, so Alan said, "You want to? You know, why don't you play?" I asked Alan, "Would you play bass on this?" And I'll play piano, and we'll see what happens. You know. It's got a cool flavor. The piano lick almost reminds me of I Love the Dead on Alice Cooper. That, yeah, dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun, you know? And the intro, yeah. I wouldn't have known that you wrote the intro on piano because it sounds so guitar-like. You know, with the yeah. guitar melodies. Yeah. So that's interesting to me that you wrote it and yeah. then you were able to show it to the band and they digested it correctly yeah. with all the parts and and I, I did play a uh, that melody that Donald plays at the beginning uh, on my demo in the studio I played the um, the the Steinway grand mm. and uh, then I came back in and uh, one of the producers said 
why don't you play electric piano? So it's actually that piano is a combination of a Fender Rhodes and a Steinway. It's a great sound, you know. So, but that was, <laughs> that, that time we were working at the record plant. The record yeah. plant was a, a tremendous studio. Jimi Hendrix worked there. Yeah. John Lennon worked there. Aerosmith worked there. Kiss worked there. Every, you know, all the, 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 it was just a, it had a magic about it, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was, that was, that was, a, that was a fun place to, uh, to record. And they put all the magic together and the fade out. And Eric comes in and does his newsboy. And, and then it, <laughs> it cuts right to the next song, which is Alan's song, where I'm playing the bass. So you hear the difference between Alan playing the bass and me playing the bass, just like in that one splice. Just mm. wow, wow. So yeah, so we 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 definitely weave together the the elements, you know. And not to mention, you know, the Reaper and the Cowbell, and you know, and you know, one of my favorites is uh, uh, this ain't the summer of love. We just kick it off yeah. right there, and it doesn't give up. So now we're, we're going to follow up with uh, your next album, which, in my opinion, you know, Spectres really was the pinnacle of Blue Oyster Cult's popularity just because of the single Godzilla, you know, which put you out there in the spotlight. You know, you influenced a whole generation of young bass players with just two bars of music. I mean, how does it feel to know you have written and performed something so impactful? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I okay. Come one on, the, man. The, Come uh, on, Joe. Come on. You you mean to tell me that you well, didn't have have young young kids coming up to you, young bass players? Like, how did you play that lick? How did you? What right. is that? Is that a chord? You know, all those questions. Well, I was very influenced by Stanley Clark as a yes, bass player. Me too. Me too. And and uh, Dennis Dunaway took me to New Haven to see Stanley Clark. It was incredible. You're talking about school days? Yeah, school days. Around that time. I, yeah. I wore Big out record. school days. Me I too. Wore out school days. So <laughs> yes. I went out and I got one of his bases. I got one of those Alembic bases. I thought, I imagined in my mind that you were walking on 48th Street in New York City, and you went to Manny's, and there was this Alembic hanging up on the wall, and the salesman took it down and says, Joe, you got to check this bear. I mean, that's what I'm thinking in no, my mind. You but know, we were, we had, the Reaper came out. It was a big hit. We started seeing a lot of people at our shows. So we were on tour in California. They came to us with the Alembic bass. We were in uh, Northern California. Mm -hmm. And they came to us with the Alembic bass. And I said, yeah, I got to have this. I got to have it. Mm -hmm. Ricky Ryer, I think, pretty much negotiated this, this bass for me. And uh, uh, then we went into the studio to cut the Spectres album. Mm -hmm. the, all of Spectres is played on that Alembic bass. It's a beast. It, I mean, it's a beast. I mean, you, you got to really be have big arms you know and it's heavy mm -hmm. but i yeah i definitely set it up in stereo and i had the high speakers and the low speakers it was a huge setup boy i feel i feel sorry for our roadies they had to carry so much stuff i didn't touch an amp for 10 years 
<laughs> you know what, though? The sound was pretty incredible. It was. Well, you know what? I'm interested to know, during that time, what was your rig like? I mean, you, did you have 10s, 18s, 15s? Did you triamp it? Did you biamp it? Did you do any of that stuff? I had a a Furman preamp, I think. I had different preamps. I'm not exactly sure. Furman is one name I remember. And I would use crown amps because they were the most powerful, cleanest. Mm -hmm. And I had four uh, folded horn cabinets with 15-inch speakers, four of those. And then I would have eight 12s, like two, basically two uh, Marshall cabinets. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was my rig for most of the, the, the heyday of the band. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't really do much with the stereo. I, I just put it up there. I liked the way it sounded. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a, it was a powerful uh, thing. I mean, nowadays people have a little, you know, have a little, you know, they have a little box in the back and nothing is on stage. Or if they have anything yeah. on stage, it's empty cabinets, it's yeah. <laughs> fake fronts. I even saw, I saw, I think it was Bad Company that had uh, hologram cabinets. I've never seen that before. I, 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 I thought I was hallucinating. It was, it was holograms. It was hologram cabinets. Wow, that's original. Well, so, I have to. So you still have that. You still have that base, as you were saying earlier. I do right? have that base. Yes. Thank God. Don't sell it, please. Or if you do, sell it to me, man. Please. You know, leave it. Leave it in your will, man. Please. You know? <laughs> well, you're going to need three guys to carry it around. <laughs> oh, you know, I play an Alembic six string. I've been uh, playing yeah. Alembic oh. for like 20 years. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's it, a heavy it bass. Is it long scale? It's a long scale. It's probably. I mean, you know. I and as, as a matter of fact, I just lightened the gauge. But if you look at the picture of me playing that bass, it looks so even to my big frame of a of a body compared to I play another bass, a Warwick um, yeah. uh, thumb bass, which is a long scale, but it certainly doesn't. It looks more like a toothbrush. Right. It doesn't look, you know, yes. doesn't look like a long scale. So no, um, it's, yeah, my, uh, my alembic is definitely long and. Uh, uh, the, so the spacing of the, the frets is really wide, too. So you mm -hmm. really have to extend. You know, but once you get on tour, your hands develop these gorilla hand, you know, uh, you get used to it, you know. Maybe maybe two or three days on the road and your hands just fall into place on that, on that pace. When we were playing, we'd do five, six shows a week. And you know, by the third night, you know your your hand just fits right in the in those big wide stretches. And and also the the nice thing about that alembic bass, it had a, at least mine has a sound like no other. And when I was playing in a stadium, if we were doing a stadium, the bass it was the best stadium bass ever. I, I mean, wow. there was there was something about the way the high end. And the mid-range would just cut through a state. It could be the most echoey um, hockey rink. And mm -hmm. you played that Alembic bass and you heard every note. You know, not only did you feel it inside, but you heard every note. And the other basses, you know, if you take a Fender bass, you're just going to sound like mush, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, the uh, the Music Man, which I, was the, the my, my last bass that I really uh, got into. Mm -hmm. um that 
that has that cuts through pretty well. But there was just something about that Olympic base. If you were being lucky enough to play in a stadium or a big hockey rink or something or the Madison Square Garden, it would cut through. It just yes. sounded beautiful. Yeah, I saw uh, John Entwistle at Shea Stadium playing an Olympic, and his tone came right out. I mean, oh, I think yeah. he was playing um, the Explorer Olympic. I'm not sure if he played an eight-string. Um, I know he had one, but I'm, if, you know, I was too young, man. I don't remember, but I do remember the sound. I remember him coming yeah. out, um, especially on that tune, Eminence Front. That was the tour oh, uh, back then. Uh, the Clash opened up. Uh, for the Who at Shea Stadium, I, and I'll never. I saw them in. I saw that same show in Buffalo. Oh, you did. That was great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We uh we got to go on stage. Every note that Pete Townsend played was like, the audience was just. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> they were like, godlike. <laughs> they, they they had every note, even if it was the simplest, you know, two three notes. They would go nuts. I know. I mean, they loved the whole thing. They loved the, the songs and all of that. This concludes part one of our conversation with Joe Bouchard. Tune in to part two where you'll learn some more information not only about Blue Oyster Cult, but his latest release, Strange Legends, right here on We Sing the Bass Electric. If you enjoyed this educational music program, please subscribe to we Sing the Bass Electric on your favorite podcast platform. We would love your feedback. Email us at we sing the bass electric at gmail.com. For bonus material and a chance to win merchandise, such as autographed CDs and more, subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our mailing list at we sing the bass electric.com. As always, thank you for your support. And please buy music from these spotlighted artists. It makes a difference.